Sounds like black and yellow. Oh. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Rhymes with black and yellow. Song. <laughs> Welcome to Apicus Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Good morning to all of you joining us locally by radio and streaming online. We appreciate you tuning in. Today is Sunday, March 15th, 2020. My name is Madeline Love, and with me in studio today is Julie Love and Rachel Lenz. This morning we are tackling a topic much on the mind of so many in our community, in our nation, and across the world. The virus SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, known by, by many as simply coronavirus, amidst all the talk, the social media, the conspiracy theories that are constantly being shared and reported on, there is a tremendous need to take a step back and sort fact from fiction. To determine what we know from what we don't know, from what is real and what is just speculation, we have asked Dr. Vincent Racaniello to join us and help us understand the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Vincent Racaniello is Higgins Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, Columbia University, New York. He's been studying viruses for over 40 years, starting in 1975 when he entered the PhD program of Biomedical Sciences at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in the City University of New York. His thesis research was focused on influenza viruses. In 1979, he joined the laboratory of Dr. David Baltimore at Massachusetts Institute of Technology for postdoc work on poliovirus. Oh, that's a lot that you've done, Dr. Racaniello. <laughs> personally, I listen, personally, I listen to him on his many podcasts, including This Week in Microbiology, This Week in Parasitology, This Week in Evolution, and of course, This Week in Virology, the podcast about viruses, the kind that make you sick. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Good morning, everybody. Yeah. Jeez, uh, there is just so much like <laughs> going on in the world, and I was really happy that you were able to like say, you know, I will take time out of my Sunday morning to talk about something that every every talking head on TV is talking about without like understanding it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I'm here because I, I do think I have something to say about this since I've been working on viruses for over 40 years. And, you know, I think the scientists, not just me, but others need to be heard. So I'm, I'm glad that you asked me on. Yeah, and you know, to be honest, uh, I would be remiss if I failed to mention that it is currently 21 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 6 degrees Celsius. The sky is clear blue and the birds are singing on this gorgeous Perfect. early spring morning. Perfect. So <laughs> <laughs> every, every episode, I think, of all the, the Twim Twiv Twix, that's what they're called, uh, podcasts, or start with the weather. And that's right. I just thought we should take that and move that forward. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I really do. <laughs> So we, before we jump into COVID-19, um, you know, I mentioned a little bit about your impressive resume in the lab and in teaching, but what is it about microbiology and especially viruses that makes you so, like, passionate to share your knowledge and experience? Well, I got, in, I got interested in viruses back in the 70s when I, I graduated college, and I was kind of lost, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, I heard about this outbreak in Africa called by Lassa, caused by Lassa virus. And that just got me so excited about viruses. So, you know, I went through the process of being a scientist. I trained. I got my own lab at Columbia. And I, I worked on them for many years. But, you know, I think it wasn't until I wrote a textbook many years ago, 20 years ago, uh, that I really started to appreciate all of viruses, not just the one that I worked on. And then I realized that people out there really don't know much about them and they would like to. And so I started teaching, I started blogging, I started podcasting, I put all my coursework up online. And 
the the response is amazing, and that kind of drives you. You see, there are people out there that want to learn more, and we've had a number of outbreaks before this one. We've had Ebola virus outbreaks. We've had uh, influenza outbreaks, and each time people want to know more and more. So. Uh, that's now my mission. I started out as a researcher, but in the end, I'm really a teacher, and I call myself Earth's virology professor. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I would like to teach as many people as I can all about viruses. No, it's, I, I re, to be honest, like, as somebody who's, like, I do clinical microbiology, not virology, and I just do bench work. Um, not just bench work, but anyway. Don't say just. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I found it really helpful as I was going back and, like, further my education to go and, like, go back and listen to things that, like, I don't do direct experience with, but I could fill in gaps in knowledge and then build upon knowledge that I had already learned. And I love how you take all of these concepts and maybe not break them down to just the layperson level, but just above the layperson level to, like, where it's really easy to grasp and understand. And I really appreciate that. You know, I didn't really answer your question, what, what is it about viruses? <laughs> so let me just briefly do that. So viruses not only make us sick, and that's really interesting how they do that, how they spread, where they come from, but it turns out there are way more viruses on the planet that don't make anything sick, but they have important roles to play. You know, the ocean is full of viruses, and it's because of them that we have a lot of the essential nutrients, a lot of essential photosynthesis that makes oxygen. So they're really essential in the whole ecology of Earth. And I'd really like people to appreciate that as well. I so, didn't know that. Yeah. So we shouldn't just be scared of viruses, what I'm hearing. Absolutely not, although, you know, most people encounter them through scares, right? Mm -hmm. And for the first hundred years of the science of virology, people studied viruses that made humans sick. And then animals, you know, agriculturally important animals and plants and fish and so forth. But now we, are, we have a growing appreciation of the beneficial roles that they play. You know, we have in us every day many different kinds of viruses that are multiplying without making us sick. And we, we, we suspect that they help us, just like our beneficial microbiome, right? We, we, we think we have a beneficial virome. Uh, and I think that's fascinating. And you know, I, maybe one of my goals is to try and take the bad rap away from viruses and convince people that's many times they can be good well and if i'm understanding correctly one of the frontiers of antibacterial research is using viruses to attack bacteria that is a, yes and in fact we are learning how to use viruses therapeutically uh, not just for bacterial infections but to cure cancers to and to, to serve to make vaccines for other viruses so some of the vaccines that are being developed for the uh, SARS-CoV-2 are actually using other viruses as vectors to deliver the proteins. It's really quite remarkable where we are. Actually, this, is, this brings up something that um, my husband Aaron and I just learned about. We learned that there's work going on towards a universal flu vaccine that takes some of, some of those virus proteins to try and help prevent, like do a one shot for, to prevent all flus in the future. That's absolutely right. Quite a few labs uh, are working on that because influenza is a big deal. A lot of people, but by the way, 15 million people in the U.S. have had flu this year. 8,000 have died. Most people don't know that. It's a, it's a big deal. And so a universal vaccine you would get maybe once in your lifetime or once every 10 years would be great, not just because it would protect you against any new flu virus that came out, but, you know, getting a shot every year is just not easy for most people or for many people. And so I, I think that's a big problem with the 
we're low uptake of the flu vaccine in this country. So a universal vaccine would be great. Do you know how far along they've they've come with that? Well, <clears throat> it's hard to really predict, but we're still at least five, I would say five to ten years off, unfortunately. Mm. Um, so there, there have been there are many different approaches that are being taken. And we're not yet at the point where we can say which one is going to work. So it's going to be some time. But the, but the NIH is putting a lot of money into that. <clears throat> a lot of your taxpayer money is going into that. So um, they're really doing it as hard as they can. Yeah, that sounds like a good use of my tax dollars. I'm yeah. very much on board <laughs> for that. <laughs> but it's nice, though, to hear like that little background that you know when we hear about viruses that we shouldn't just automatically have this negative view mm -hmm. and this you know fearful view either. So um, the topic of, topic of COVID-19 is pretty broad. Uh, a lot of misinformation already circulating. So maybe we should start with some really base knowledge. What is COVID-19? So COVID-19 is actually the disease caused by SARS coronavirus 2 or SARS-CoV-2. COVID stands for coronavirus infectious disease 19 means 2019. That's when we first discovered it. And it is a respiratory disease caused by SARS-CoV-2, which uh, you, you acquire by either inhaling respiratory droplets produced by someone else or putting contaminated material into your respiratory tract. And in most people, 83% of people who are infected, it causes a mild disease. But in the other 17%, you know, a number of them can require hospitalization. And that's why we're so concerned about this particular outbreak. So most of us that get it are probably going to be fine. But 17%, that's still a pretty large number of, of people that I should worry about. Yeah, but of course, not all of them will die. And in fact, right. I would argue that if most of them get the proper hospital care, they will survive. And South Korea has shown that beautifully, where they have many, many cases. And because they've been preparing since January, they can take care of sick people they're doing a lot of screening and diagnosis. So this is a condition that we are equipped to deal with, especially in the U.S. You know, we have 95,000 intensive care unit beds available. And so as long as we don't exceed that capacity, we can take care of most of these individuals, except for the sickest ones, which, and you know, the, the three main uh, factors that make this infection worse are having high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, and heart disease. You know, for, for those patients, a few percent of the total infected, it's challenging. But, you know, even in that case, with the proper care, we can take care of them. So I've only got like maybe 35, 40 seconds before I have to go to break. But can you share like, like what kind of virus is this? If there's different, like I said, I really want to go back to like very basic stuff at first. <laughs> but how is this virus different from like a flu virus or from a cold virus? Well, we classify different viruses according to what they look like and their genetic information. So flu viruses are a family, as we call them, onto their own. And coronaviruses are a big family of viruses. And they infect almost everything on Earth, you know, every mammal and, and birds and so forth and humans. Uh, and they are uh, uh, they sort of look like flu from the outside, except they have a distinct appearance, which is why they're called coronaviruses. They have genetic information uh, inside a, a a package which has a membrane around it, and then there's some spikes stuck in the membrane, which are proteins that are very important. So they're in a family of their own. They're 
Uh, all right. Well, I am going to have to unfortunately go to break. Please stay with us through the break. Hertzy and I, I'm sorry, <laughs> Rachel Julie and I will turn to Atheist Talk with our special guest, Dr. Vincent Racaniello. Welcome back to AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned in to Atheist Talk. I'm your host, Maddie Love, joined in the studio by my co-hosts, Julie Love and Rachel Lenz. And in just a moment, we'll return to our guest, Dr. Vincent Racaniello, virologist, teacher, and host of This Week in Virology. I know you just finished listening to commercials, but I wanted to give my weekly shout-out to Cucumbers Restaurant in Edina. It's true that Atheist Talk is produced with funding from both Minnesota Atheists and Cucumbers Restaurant in Edina, Minnesota. But it is also true that the buffet cucumbers is fantastic, ginormous, and one of my favorite places to grab a bite, whether it's after being on air or just spending an enjoyable meal with my wife, not large groups of people right now. So please, seriously, please consider visiting our sponsors. And if you do, let them know that you appreciate their support of Atheist Talk. If you'd like to advertise on this program and help keep us on the air, please contact us at radio at mnatheist.org. And now back to Dr. Racaniello. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation, you can call us at 952 956-6205. Email us at radio at mnatheist.org or tweet us at Atheist Talk. Dr. Ranconiello, thank you so much for sticking around through the break. I'm afraid your audio is way down. I don't know what you did there, but I can't hear you. Can you hear us now? Yep, that's good. Oh, fantastic. Well, thanks for uh, sticking around for the break. Um, And I hope this different audio setup than than we're used to, so I don't know how far you got into your... uh, description of what the uh, COVID-19 virus, I'm sorry, the SARS-CoV-2 <laughs> virus is uh, <laughs> before we dropped you. Um, but it's, it's, it's just a, it's a virus. It's similar to flu, but looks a little bit different on the outside. Is that, is that understanding well, that properly? I, let's not say it's, oh yeah, that's, I, it's that's, similar to flu. <laughs> it, it's, you know, it's in this broad collection of viruses with a particular kind of genome, which we call RNA. Most of us have DNA in us, right? right. Some viruses are different. So flu and coronaviruses have RNA, but that's where the similarity stops. And maybe they both cause, they can both cause respiratory infections. But the coronaviruses are a different virus family from influenza viruses. They behave differently. And we shouldn't say they're the same. Many people are saying it's the same thing, but it's absolutely not. That was a very poor choice of words on my, on my end. <laughs> um, but I guess though, We've got vaccines to flu. We've got all these other vaccines. Why don't we have a vaccine for COVID-19? And to be honest, I actually know the answer to this question, but <laughs> I realize it's not well, simple. Uh, co- uh, SARS-CoV-2 is a, is a brand new virus, which we never saw before. You know, it apparently came from uh, bats or some other animal. And um, so we're not prepared. Although, uh, you know, people have been experimenting with vaccines against MERS coronavirus and the original SARS coronavirus. Um, but to be honest, um, we're not, we weren't ready. We, many people forgot about SARS after it went away so quickly in 2003. And I really do think if, if we had invested more into it, we would be more prepared in terms of not just vaccines, but antiviral drugs. And it's because in part the SARS went away so quickly and, and companies that make these compounds were not interested. So that actually um, brings up another question for me. Um, I, I've heard that basically pandemics aren't a matter of if they will happen, but just when they will happen. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of public funding for these sorts of things? So as the human population has grown and become more mobile, viruses are going to spread in them much easier. And 
that's a pandemic when we have global infections. And we humans have always been infected since the beginning of the species, right? But we had smaller numbers and, you know, they were isolated in small communities. So it, these infections didn't spread as much, but now they do. And so this is going to be a fact of life for as long as we're here on this planet. And we need to have public research. However, between pandemics, there's very short memory. And the, the, in, in the U.S., you know, the NIH is the main supporter of biomedical research. And they depend on Congress to get their funding. It's very difficult to get funding for things that are not currently an issue. And so, I, you know, all of you out there, if you're concerned about this outbreak, write your senator or congressman and say, please support basic research uh, on pandemic viruses, preparedness, uh, because, you know, th we had a pandemic um, community in place in the last administration. It was disbanded. We had some research going on in a program called PREDICT to find viruses out there that might be potential threats, and that was all canceled uh, because people want to save money and use it for other things. But I would argue that a virus that can do what it's doing today is just a threat, as much a threat as a foreign nation who wants to attack us militarily. So we should always be investing in research on these potential path pathogens, not just viruses, but bacteria as well. Yeah, there's a lot of head nodding going on. This room right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> you know, thinking of the like national security, you know, it, it reminds me of something that it saddens and frustrates me as, as I've had these conversations with people, um, even like people with strong science backgrounds, is that somehow this is a conspiracy for, you know, it's an artificially created virus. There's a secret vaccine that'll be, you know, given out surprise later to help somebody. Um, what do you think is the best way to counteract the the conspiracy and the misinformation narratives that surround this this pandemic? Yeah, this is a, something that I've seen continuously in this outbreak from the beginning. And I think it comes from a misunderstanding because, I mean, no one has created a brand new pathogen. No, no one has ever done that. Um, People may have tried for bioterror processes, but you know, bioterrorism is difficult because viruses and bacteria are unpredictable. There are far better ways to incite terror in a population, as everyone knows. And so, but yet every time a new virus emerges, and I think part of it is that all of a sudden it's here and people think, ah, oh, that had to be made by humans because it couldn't appear just like that. But in fact, that's how nature works. You know, evolution occurs very slowly, and this virus has probably been incubating in animals uh, for many years. It could be years or months or thousands of years. We just don't know. Uh, and, you know, it's not made by humans. We couldn't do this. And in fact, I have looked at this virus sequence very carefully, as have many other virologists. And there are so many surprises there. It couldn't have been made by a person because no one would know to do the things that are in this new virus. And so um, I think accidents can happen, but typically scientists are very careful and they don't do things that could lead to uh, the, the production of a, of a new pathogen. And in the US, in fact, if you wanna do any experiments that remotely would come close to making something new, where I would say making a derivative of something we already know, because making something new is just impossible. You're, you're very highly regulated. So I, I think people should, my default is always to trust people. I think people should trust scientists until they know otherwise. No, 
I just I remember we had the same kind of conspiracy thinking uh, back with the H1N1 epidemic, or with, I, was, I don't know if that was a pandemic or the correct. Yeah, it was term. a pandemic, right? Yeah. yeah, and hearing some of that as well, and then it all just died away <laughs> rather quickly, and then of course we forgot about pandemics well, happening. Well, what what happened there is we knew we could figure out where that virus came from. You know, it's a combination of influenza viruses and various different animals. We could piece it all together. And the same way here, people are starting to piece together the origin of SARS-CoV-2. Eventually, we'll find out. It was very clear. It's very similar to a virus that's that's been circulating in bats for some time. So there's no need to invoke uh, human participation in this. So it sounds like, and I've just got a couple, a few seconds left for the break, but it, it sounds like education is the best way to combat the the fear totally that's why i do all this work absolutely thank you for that yes thank you all right well we'll return to our guest dr racaniello after this short commercial break please stay with us i'm maddie love in studio with julie love and rachel lentz you're listening to atheist talk on ktnf am 950 the progressive voice of minnesota Thank you for tuning in to Atheist Talk on AM 950 KTNF. I'm your host, Maddie Love, in studio with Julie Love and Rachel Lenz. Dr. Vincent Racaniello is our guest, and he hosts This Week in Virology. If you'd like to chat with us this morning, call us at 952-946-6205, email us at radio at mnatheist.org, or tweet us at Atheist Talk. I just want to thank our group of dedicated volunteers and the generous donations of you, our listeners, who help keep Atheist Talk on the air and in podcast. This week, uh, we'd like to thank Special Donor of the Week, Mike. If you're able to help with the donation, please consider doing so at our Radio Fun page or our Patreon, where you can get extended interviews at patreon.com slash atheisttalk. Minnesota Atheist is a 501c3 tax-deductible organization. We couldn't do this show without you, and we deeply appreciate your support. Music for Atheist Talk is by composer and member Brent Michael David and is used with permission. Please note, all opinions are of guests and hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the Minnesota Atheist Organization. However, science is still real. All right, mischief managed. Let's get back to Dr. Racaniello and (laughs) COVID-19. So uh, during the break, we actually got a call, and I'm wondering if you'd be okay with taking a call. You bet. All right, Patrick, whenever you're ready. Oh, he's actually not on the air with us. He just wanted to pass along. He asked, uh, he had a message. He wanted to know, how do bats pick up these viruses and be able to eventually transmit them to humans through perhaps a... Another means, I think, perhaps this was through some tainted meat, I believe, was one possible explanation. But he wanted to know how bats end up as carriers of these diseases. Did you, were you able to hear that, Dr. Arcanel? No, not at all. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, so the caller was curious, um, like, how do the bats get, get these viruses and these diseases that are able to transmit uh, over to humans? Like, and, so, and is that from, like, tainted meat or from something else? No, bats actually have more viruses than any other uh, species on Earth. Um, and so they're, they're infected with many, many different viruses, but they're fine. They can handle it. And why they are able to have so many infections is a question people are studying because they'd like to know what bats are doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, we think it has something to do with flight. Bats are the only mammals that fly. And, you know, they constitute 20% of mammals. A lot of bats in the world. Wow. And we, we think <laughs> yeah. the ability to deal with flight, which puts a lot of demands uh, on the organism, has, has also made them immune to damage by viruses. So they're naturally infected. So if you go in a cave and there are lots of bats in there, 
they're infected and they're shedding and their guano, right, which typically fills the cave, is full of viruses as well. And so, you know, in some parts of the world, farmers harvest the guano for fertilizer. And that's one way that people can get infected with bat viruses. Yeah, I, there have actually been wars fought over bat guano caves because it used to be used for gunpowder production. Oh. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I think most people by now uh, have accepted that they need to wash their hands more, although I'm a little yeah. scared about what they were doing before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what is the reason for the CDC and who not recommending that we all wear masks? So I think there are two reasons, all right? This is my take from thinking about this a long time. It's not an official take by any means. First, there are not enough masks in the U.S. I think we have 12 million uh, surgical masks stocked up. And, you know, the healthcare workers need those, not us, because they have to protect themselves. If they get infected, we're really in trouble. And so if we had more, they would recommend it. And that was something we could have started doing in January to build up our mask supply. And the other is that many people don't wear them properly. You know, they have to be put on a certain way and they have to be taken off a certain way. It's called donning and doffing, right? And if you don't do it correctly, you're going to contaminate yourself. So masks can make a difference. We have plenty of studies which show if properly used, they can make a difference. But I think the shortage and the lack of expertise is a big problem. Hmm. So... When it comes to, like, new information, obviously TWIV is a fantastic, especially lately. I mean, just, it's like every week y'all are putting out a fantastic new episode answering questions. But outside of, like, This Week in, Micro- this week in Virology, where's the best place to, like, vet new information as, as I hear it? So I use three places uh, that I recommend. So the WHO website is great. They tell you what's going on. No, you know, it's uh, unfiltered. It's really good info. Uh, the CDC website here in the U.S., and for countries that have CDC, you should turn to your local CDC website. And then one site that many people may not know about, but all of us virologists and microbiologists do, it's called promedmail.org. And this is a site where they have a number of staff who take all the outbreak information and uh, issue a number of posts every day, and you can subscribe to their email. It's a nonprofit organization that has, will tell you what's going on before anybody knows about it. It's really good. Yeah, we'll definitely include links to those in our show notes, mm-hmm. just so that people who are driving don't have to worry about navigating on their phone. <laughs> so I have a, I have a question. Um, one of the things that I, um, I have been privy to is that a lot of younger people are like, oh, well, if I get this, I'll be fine, so I'm just going to go about my, my daily life anyway. Um, I think that's a really selfish thing to do just because, um, you know, it's not just you that you have to worry about. You have to worry about your your, communi- your community, those who are have underlying diseases, who are, you know, old, older. <laughs> um, but there is another thing that I had been that had been pointed out to me that there's a possibility of side effects, even if you are young and you get this this virus. Can you tell us about um, what the chances of getting potentially life changing side effects like lung scarring? Well, this is something that is a concern, but, you know, it's pretty early in this outbreak, and we haven't had a lot of case reports from China to tell us uh, what what could happen. We don't have any long-term effects at all. It's only been a few months, Mm -hmm. right? But this virus damages your lungs. In the most serious cases, the virus goes way down into the alveoli, those sacs at at the ends of your lungs passages where the air is exchanged, and the virus damages those. In the most serious cases, 
they fill up with water, the, the fluid leaks out of your tissues into the sacs, and you essentially drown, right? So Lovely. it's clearly damaging. And, you know, eventually you can recover. The question is, do you have long-term effects? We don't know. If you're healthy, it's probably not an issue. But I think if you already have lung issues, if you say it's asthmatic, it could, on top of that, be a, a concern. But that's something we need to look at as we see uh, more and more people recovering from this. One thing that I have heard or noticed in the statistics is that this, that while, of course, the seasonal flu is much deadlier for those who are immunocompromised or elderly, I've noticed the death rate for COVID-19 thus far has been somewhere around 15% in at least the Chinese and the Italian data. How, do you know how that might compare to the seasonal flu for those groups? So that the death, the death ratio for COVID-19 really varies depending on where you are. In South Korea, it's less than 1%. In Iran and Italy, it's 3 to 4%. And it's, it's solely because we can't take care of people who are very sick in, in areas where the most uh, deaths have occurred. Uh, I am convinced that we can properly treat most of the patients as long as we have an ICU bed with proper ventilation, right? Right. And so I don't think it's fair to say the fatality ratio is 15% because it really is a factor of what country you're in, what kind of health care you get. Now, seasonal influenza is, is less than 1%. Although the numbers are so big, you get a lot of deaths. So we have 15 million cases in the U.S. so far and 8,000 deaths. So it's less than 1%. But, you know, if you infect enough people, you get a lot of deaths. And what we're concerned about with this virus is having so many infections that we can't take care of people and more people will die. I don't think that should happen in the U.S. I think, you know, our health care system is great. So far in New York, there have been a lot of cases but few deaths because great health care. And as long as the system isn't overburdened, we'll be fine. Flatten that curve. Flatten the curve, exactly. <laughs> well, and speaking of that, that's what is, like, like, do you think that the current advice that we're getting on, uh, you know, avoiding large groups, like, do you think that's something that's going to help flatten that curve? Yes. And, you know, I just got an email from the dean of my medical school saying we're going to curtail research. Right. Mm. I mean, and I'll do whatever they tell me to do. But I think all of this cancellation of meetings, no big groups of people. Yes, we have to do that. And it's going to cut down the transmission and it'll extend the outbreak a bit. Right. Because we're not going to get rid of the virus by doing that. There are going to be some people who have to be out and about their essential personnel and they're going to still be transmitting. But uh, it will flatten the curve, which means fewer numbers so we don't overburden the healthcare system. And then presumably, you know, we get into the summer months, and that will slow down the transmission as well. Uh, and, you know, we can learn from the China lesson. They had a huge outbreak starting in January. And now, at least where they're looking, there are fewer, fewer cases. So they were able to do it. And so we can do it as well. Yeah, I heard a great analogy about using, like, the, for flattening the curve about water. Like, it's easy to drink a gallon of water over, like, a day or two days. But trying <laughs> to drink a gallon of water in five seconds is very difficult. <laughs> um, and it's the same with the healthcare. We, we can take care of all these patients if they come yes. in over a, a period of time. But when they're all dumped on the system at once, that's that's where the problem is. So I, I have another question here. Um, when 
If you want, if you are somebody who is uh, young and healthy, you don't have any underlying um, conditions, so you're not very afraid of, of contracting this, but you also want to help your community, what do you recommend um, that people can do to help out those that, that are um, at higher risk of contracting this disease? Stay away from them. To stay away from them. I think if you have elderly parents, grandparents, tell them stay home and don't bring your kids to visit them. Right. I know a lot of people who are not seeing their grandkids and they're kind of sad, but it's really important not to do that. Um, the fewer people out and about, the better. It's not going to last forever, but we don't know the, the end point at this point. So that's a little scary for most people. So I would say unless you have an essential role and you have to work, moving about as little as possible is the best thing that you can do. So kind of a follow-up to that, this is actually a question I just got from one of my coworkers in the microbiology lab. Uh, it's a question from David who is asking, do you believe that the widespread travel bans like the one recently enacted between mainland Europe and the United States are advisable to slow the spike in new cases of COVID-19 and to help allocate more resources towards the eventual treatment of all? Yeah, I do. Even though you know we have plenty of transmission chains here in the U.S. already, uh, you could argue that it's kind of late to, to ban, but there, there's a lot of activity uh, in Europe still, and we don't want to keep seeding new outbreaks. So I think that is a good idea for the moment. You know, it's not it's not forever, um, but I, I do think, and I heard Dr. Fauci last night say the same thing. He thinks it's a good ban, and um, what is good for Anthony Fauci is good for all of us. Well, and, you know... I've only got a few seconds again before our break, but just coming from somebody of my political persuasion, it's sometimes easy to like demonize everything that's said or done by an administration mm -hmm. and sometimes look past your bias. It's hard to sometimes look past your bias and then judge that information for what it's worth. And mm -hmm. I think that's an important thing that we should all do, but that's my two cents. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have just a few seconds before break. Uh, well, actually, never mind. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have to go to break. So we'll return to our guest, Dr. Vincent Racaniello, and the topic of COVID-19 right after this short commercial break. I'm Maddie Love in studio with Julie Love and Rachel Lenz. You're listening to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to AM950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned into Atheist Talk. I'm your host, Maddie Levin, and joined in studio by Julie Levin and Rachel Lenz. And we are chatting with Dr. Racaniello about COVID-19. Thanks for sticking around to another break for us. Oh, My pleasure. Oh, good. I was like, did we lose you? I'm here. <laughs> so this is our last segment, um, which, to be honest, is, is really, really sad. Um, I agree. <laughs> You can have me back. Oh, we will. Uh, yeah, I. I <laughs> Anytime, my I'm at your service. Okay, oh, that's I, well, because I'd actually I would love to do an episode where we actually just focusing on the importance of science communication because sure. that ties into so many things like this. Mm -hmm. Like I don't think we would have to do an episode where we just focused on COVID nineteen if mm -hmm. we had a better nationwide understanding of science and had. Like if science communication was just a better thing that, per, you know, was per, pervasive. 
but that's my opinion. <laughs> um, actually, speaking of communicating science, uh, I listened to um, something where our governor actually in Minnesota declared a, a state of emergency right before um, President Trump declared a national state of emergency. And one of the things that um, they mentioned was that they they weren't closing schools because the transmission rate of children was a lot lower than in other age groups. Can you tell us more about that? I've heard that used by a couple of states for as reason for not closing schools, and I just think it's a, a misconception. There's a no evidence that hmm. kids are transmitting any less than anybody else. Kids are kids are healthy now it's interesting that you know especially kids less than nine years old they they're not getting very sick but uh, they're certainly getting infected and I think they're shedding a lot of virus so they can transmit and that's why I think we should close schools because they're going to transmit among themselves at school and then bring it home to parents or grandparents and that's the problem we want to avoid so right now I think schools should be closed uh, how long that happens I don't know but definitely that would make a big impact in New York City alone, 600,000 kids in schools and they're not, they haven't yet closed them. And I think that's a big problem. Hmm. I'm thinking especially of like multi-generational families. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Think, yeah. Um, I was just reading at NPR just this morning about a, a Japanese guided tour bus, Japanese tour bus driver, guided tour, whatever. Um, but she had just tested positive for COVID-19 a second time. She had been positive in late January had showed apparent uh, signs of apparent recovery and now this week tested positive again and i was wondering how normal that is for a virus to reinfect or is this maybe that the virus never really just left her body and just like reflared up yeah we're hearing more reports of that and i'm afraid you know these kind of anecdotal reports are not very helpful uh, especially for something like this um I think it could be that, so these, these tests, these diagnostic tests are not 100%, as you know, you can get false negatives. And I think in some cases, they just weren't over their infection. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, they've tested positive again. But we also don't know if they actually are harboring infectious virus. These are diagnostic tests that are not looking for infectious virus. They're looking for pieces of the, the viral nucleic acid. And so it could be that they're just, we just, we're beginning to learn that for many virus infections, uh, well after you've recovered, there are still pieces of the viral DNA or RNA floating around in you. It doesn't seem to have any consequence. So at this point, I'm not too worried about that because our understanding is for most microbial infections, viruses and bacteria, you get infected, you make immunity, and that protects you against subsequent infection. What about um, mutation? Is there any indication that this, that this disease will mutate or is is there anything, do we fear that that's something that will happen anytime soon? I hear that a lot from people, uh, not just, you know, people out there and about, but scientists are talking about that, but it's really um, not correct. Here, let me explain why. So all viruses, as they reproduce, they make mutations, they make mistakes. We make mistakes in our reproduction of cells, and most of them have no consequence. So... I think there's no reason to think this virus, of course, is mutating like all others are mutating as they move through the population, but there's no reason to think it's going to get worse. There's really no advantage to the virus to kill people more quickly, right? Because sure. the virus is aimed, is reproducing, and the selection is to find a new host. And the longer the host lives, 
happen more frequently, that'll happen. So I think increased virulence, and in fact, I've never seen that. In all my years studying human viruses, I've never seen increased lethality. If anything, I've seen reduced lethality. So I don't think that's in play here at all. So you're telling me that the 1995 movie Outbreak is incorrect? <laughs> Absolutely. This idea that... that uh, so in that movie, they saw during the outbreak an increase in transmissibility, right? So that's being more efficiently transmitted, which theoretically is correct. But, but this virus is already really good at transmitting. And to get better is not actually... Everything is driven by selection. Mm -hmm. And if it's already transmitting well, there's no selection to get better. So in, in many ways, that movie is unrealistic. But it's a movie. It's meant to scare people. <laughs> and so they have to take liberties with the science. Right? Sure. Yep. <laughs> well, in my understanding of when MERS came and, and burned out, that that was one of the, the maybe good things about the MERS outbreak was that it was so lethal that it wasn't able to, not that this is a good thing for the people that died and their families, but that it, it couldn't spread because it killed its host too fast. Is that my understanding that right? Are you talking about MERS or the original SARS? Oh, gosh, I don't know now. I was so thinking the original about MERS. SARS. The original SARS burned out. Yeah. And that was in part because it made people quite sick. They went in the hospital, and there they could contain the infection really well. So you didn't have community spread. Um, MERS continues to this day, but it's quite lethal. But there are short chains of infection. Usually you get an infection from a camel who's infected. You get sick. Maybe you pass it on to one or two people, and then it burns out. So it has never gotten the ability to transmit really well among people in all the years it's been circulating. Do we know with COVID-19 um, what the transmission rate is? It's around two to three, which means uh, any infected person could infect two or three others. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's higher than seasonal flu. Mm -hmm. So it's quite transmissible. And that's why it's spreading like crazy around the globe. Yeah. That coupled with the fact that nobody has any immunity to it is really responsible for that. Yeah, it makes it exponential. And so hopefully, after this goes, if if this is a disease that ends up staying with us, hope it is it possible that the next time this comes around, um, we'll have some more natural built immunity to it? Is that a possibility? Yeah, I, I think this will be with us. This is becoming a human virus because I don't think we'll be able to get rid of it from every. There's always going to be someone infected. Uh, and I suspect it's going to be seasonal, which means in, uh, like, the U.S. temperate climates, it'll be winter mainly only. So my feeling is this will burn out sometime this summer. We'll have good population immunity. And then if we have another outbreak, say, in December, that'll help with the population immunity will help. And then perhaps sometime next year, we'll have some vaccines available that will further help us. Oh, that Great. would be fantastic. Well, we are actually... At the end of our hour, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a, been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, thank you for returning to Atheist Talk. We'd love for you to join us again next Sunday. Where I'll be chatting with a good friend at Atheist Podcaster, Rob Ray, about the two years he just spent living and working in, in, in Antarctica. <laughs> All episodes of Atheist Talk are available wherever quality podcasts are found. I'm proud to be on the air with Minnesota Atheists, and I hope you've enjoyed the show. The show depends on the generous support of our members, our sponsors, and donors. Please consider donating, donating to and supporting the show through the donation link at mnatheist.org. This has been Atheist Talk on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota.